You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, let's let's dive in. And uh, so we're starting today uh, a seven-week series on the on the parables of Jesus, um, which again I'm I'm grateful for these kinds of opportunities. I you know I I pay the bills by teaching the Old Testament, um, which I always kind of joke you know at Beeson they're like you you can fiddle with Moses we like for you to keep your hands off Jesus. Um, <laughs> That's not really the case. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to kind of work it out here a little bit with you all. And we'll, we'll spend seven weeks on the parables. I don't really have it mapped out yet. Um, I, know, I know what we'll do today and next week, which we'll spend time in Luke chapter 8. So if you want to spend some homework, you know, reading Luke chapter 8 in preparation for next week, that probably would be good. Um, I think Luke 8, by the way, in the parable of the sower, which is the first parable that we find both in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, is paradigmatic. Um, matter of fact, probably the parable by which the others are meant to be understood. That might be overstated a bit, but uh, we'll, there's a reason why we're going to spend a lot of time today and next week in, in, uh, in Luke 8, and we'll refer back to Matthew's uh, use of it as well. So we'll do the, the parable of the sower, and then from there we'll just see kind of where, where things go. Now, I'm, I'm flirting with the idea of just staying in Luke and not going to any other other gospel, and I probably will do that. Um, but we'll, you know, I don't want to commit myself out of the gate. Now, so today, before we kind of get deep into the parable itself, I'd like to do some introductory work and thought, I'm thinking out loud with you about the nature of the parables themselves and why the parables have the enduring force that I think um, the parables have. So the first thing I want to talk about today is uh, something about the, the, the importance of story, um, narratives, in, in our lives, in the ways in which we make sense of the world. And I, I don't know, this is a pretty, you know, large crowd and a diverse crowd. I don't know where you are on the reading of stories. You know, we have, um, four children in our house and, you know, they're required to read, you know, we, we by the school and by the law of the, our, the Medes and the Persians in our home. Um, and that's not always without kicking and screaming, but we, you know, we so we live in kind of a storied world, um, especially you know sort of children's stories, children's narratives. Um, and I don't I don't know if you love fiction or not, but I'm going to draw some some analogies to parables this morning from fiction because I think there's a connection between what happens to us when we read fiction and stories, and the force of parables themselves because parables really are rather simple. Um, we'll get to the character of, of Jesus' parables in a second, but one thing just to say right out of the gate, the, the parables are, re, are they're, they're simple and they're straightforward. So we're not, we're not talking here about um, Milton's Paradise Lost um, or the third canto you know, of Dante's Inferno. I mean, th- these, these are rather simple stories that are drawn from everyday life and they don't take a lot of work to understand the imagery that's going on. But as we will see, um, there's a bit of a bait and switch with the parables. They're, they're, they're simple in their presentation, but in their understanding, 
they're profound and complex. And, and before the day's over, you're going to see that Jesus is doing that on purpose in ways that might make us uncomfortable, frankly. Uh, Jesus is, 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 is obfuscating um, for a reason, and we'll, and we'll get to that in a bit. But, but going back to stories, what is it about stories and reading a fiction or narrative? What, what is it that, that, that taps into um, our humanity? and our shared experiences in ways that um, other modes of literature um, struggle to do. In other words, when you read a narrative and a story, you're drawn into a world that's other than your own. Um, You're forced um, to get lost into something that causes you to see things in new ways, in ways that um, if left to your own devices, you might look at the world through a set of lenses that you have, and that, by your own lived experience, is the means by which you understand the world. And that's understandable. That, that's just sort of the given nature of what it means to be human. We work with the resources and the experiences that we have to make sense of our world that we go that, as we move through it. Now, what fiction and narratives and stories allow for us is the ability to see the world in ways in other ways than we would naturally if left to ourselves. It's, it's one of the reasons why um, I, I, um, I want my, my own kids and other, and I even talk to my students about this at, at, at Beeson, uh, to read fiction. It, it, not only is it fuel for the soul, but it's pastorally um, important, for I think, for pastors and those who are dealing with people to be able to see the world through lenses that are other, th- other than their own. Um, can I give you some examples of how this has happened for me? And I'm going to kind of work through this. And I, um, I, I wish Jim, is Jim Palmer here? He's, he's the guy to, to unleash on this topic, by the way. Um, but uh, I'll just give my own sort of brief deal on this. Growing up, I was forced to read as well stories. Um, and, and, I, and I hated it. I mean, I did. I can remember. I was my mother's here. God bless her. But I, I didn't. I like. I w- I wanted to play ball, and, and just I hated it. I didn't like to sit and do that. Um, and then uh, it was my. I can remember my sophomore year of high school. I sat in Miss Isaac's English class. I don't remember name of any other of my teacher that sophomore year, but I do remember Miss Isaac's. And um, and she was an interesting gal, a kind of uh, uh, soft. Uh, I don't know. She's kind of an aggressive pagan, actually, in retrospect. But, um, <laughs> but I can remember uh, sitting with, in Mrs. Isaac's class, and I was for, forced to read in that class John Knowles' A Separate Piece, which I think every high school student has to read right. Um, I've given it to my middle son and said, here you go. Here's my copy. Start. Um, I'm not sure I can even work out for you the narrative. I remember there were two boys involved, kind of set in a New England boarding school, and but I don't remember the details of the narrative itself, but I do remember the experience. And I can remember that reading moment as a 15, 16-year-old guy um, grabbing me in a, way that, in a way that I had never experienced before. And I was drawn into a world that allowed me to experience something that I had never experienced on my own because I had never lived in a New England boarding school and wrestled with the kind of issues that these young men were wrestling with in this particular moment of time that was very different than my moment in time. So I can, I can still remember the experience and the effect of my first... I mean, I've read many stories before that, but my, my first narratival encounter that grabbed me 
and caused me to sort of enter into a world that was other than my own. And I think it took some time, frankly, but as, you know, as I've gotten older, then all of a sudden now, you know, I've been introduced to a whole other world because of the gift of reading. And I, I just think now, right, right now I'm going through a little bit of a, of a William Faulkner phase in my, in my reading. And the only reason why, I'm going to be very honest with you, I tried, I was on the golf course, um, years ago with my doctoral supervisor. I had just finished reading John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Anybody? Right? Remember that? Um, and, uh, and blown away by the biblical, the Cain and Abel story read through this sort of powerful uh, narrative set in sort of Western USA. And, and I, and I was, I mentioned this to my doctoral supervisor. He said, oh, this, this, this narrative, I mean, this book is great. We talked about it a lot. He said, well, if you're, if you're up for it, you really need to give William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom a try. And I, you know, I said, oh, I'll do it. Right. Um, I finally admitted to him about a month ago in an email, you told me that thir- you know, 14, 15 years ago, I-, I bought it. I read 120 pages. I mean, I-, I gave myself to that. Could not make heads or tails. Have any of you had that experience? I was like, I, I don't know. And I'm a big believer, by the way, that reading comes to you in particular moments in time. I tell my students all the time, if you give 50, 60 pages to a book and it ain't working, put it down and move it. Life is too short, right? Move on. Now, this, this whole sort of bravado, I'm going to finish that book no matter what. Forget about it. Put it down. Move on. Because really, I think books are made for, for times and, and seasons of life. Pick it up in five years and give it another go. So all to say, I, I, I've given it a go again. And the, and I, but I didn't read Absalom last time. I started reading a Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. And um, it was like, boom, clicked. I remember turning the page and here's Vardaman saying, my mother is a fish. And if you know the context of what's going on, he'd seen a fish that was killed and filleted and they're all preparing a coffin for the mother who's dying. And I'm in, I've entered into a world in sort of southern rural Mississippi that I didn't, I didn't know in a time that I didn't really understand but it gave me eyes a couple more experiences Marilyn Robinson's uh, novel Lila that I, I I just commend all of you to read Marilyn Robinson's novel Lila I'm not a woman unless you I mean I'm not um, uh, n- neither am I a woman who's had a background where I was um, deprived of any familial oversight Gave a try at being a prostitute in St. Louis for a while, but I was a ho- I was horrible at it. Right? Um, got got lost on the way somewhere, and then all of a sudden ended up walking into a small Iowa town named Gilead, and came into church and heard the gospel. And all of a sudden, things began to change in my life. And before I know it, I'm marrying the preacher in town. <laughs> Um, and my whole story. By the way, I think the the the, the whole of of Robinson's Lila is a large figural reading of the whole of Ezekiel 16. I think Robinson's intending that, frankly. Um, And why do I say that? Because Ezekiel 16 is Lila's favorite text. She's reading it all the time. And by the way, that is a grown-up text. That is not an easy text. Um, I I was drawn into a world. Chaim Potox, Asher Lave, drawn into a world. Think about what does it mean to be a, a Jewish artist who comes from the Hasidic community who can't pursue the artistic desires that he wants to because of the the, the legal restrictions of his own uh, own religious world. I'm just saying, fiction draws you in. Stories draw you in in such a way as to allow you to see the world with eyes that are not your own. And to learn to appreciate the eyes that are not your own and the experiences that are not your own. Why? So that you yourself can be transformed. 
That's where I think fiction is at its strongest. All of a sudden, you get drawn into a world and you find yourself in that world and you're being shaped with it along the way. Um, few things, I think, have the power to do that to us on both the intellectual, emotional, psychological side of our being other than fiction and narrative. And Jesus gets it. And that's the point. Jesus understands that fiction and story and narrative, um, shared experiences that people can draw from that allow, in the terms of Soren Kierkegaard, indirect communication or even better, backdoor communication, in other words, Jesus isn't just saying, you need to do this. Jesus saying, you know, a sower went sowing one day. And instead of Jesus walking to the front door of a propositional statement, you need to believe this about X, Y, and Z, Jesus comes into the back door through a story. And before you know it, you blink, and Jesus is sitting in your living room having a very direct conversation with you. But how did he even get there? Like, Jesus, how are you sitting on my couch right now? Well, because I came in the back door via a story, I let your guard down, I entered into some sort of moment of a shared experience, and now you're ready to hear what I had to say for those, as we're here before this morning is over, for those who have the ears to hear. And that's not everyone, actually. Okay. Now, uh, a few things, oops, a few things about uh, parables here. Okay. A couple more things. So this is all throat clearing. Okay. Um, what are parables? Parables are expanded analogies. Right? They're expanded analogies that are built on shared experiences. That's what makes the parables have a kind of link and connection um, to metaphors. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to, I could potentially bore you and lose you right here. Um, but there's been a whole renaissance of work that's been done over the last 30 years on, on, um, what metaphors actually do for our ability to understand and know. The ancient world, by the way, think like Aristotle. They taught that metaphors were merely ornamental uh, devices of rhetoric. In other words, think, um, you know, you, you, you finish the steak and then you put it on the table and you put some salt and pepper on it or maybe a little pat of garlic butter or whatever. That, that's, that's what a metaphor is. It's, not, it's nothing substantial. It's just the cherry on top of the sundae, ornam, uh, rhetorically speaking. And as you sort of went along through the rhetorical traditions of the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, they encourage you to use metaphors minimally. Because they, they clutter things. And you want to be really clear. The metaphors kind of get all cluttery. Over the past 30 years, the research has been done, and I think it's probably quite right on the right track, is to show metaphors are not merely ornamental. We can't understand our world apart from them. It's how we make sense of the world. Now, through shared experiences that, uh, that we have together, that you draw analogies between things that aren't common. They're not the same, but that helps us then by these analogies and these comparisons to make sense of our world. Um, think, for example, uh, how this works in the book of Song of Solomon. I am a rose of Sharon. I mean, that's, that's a metaphor. And... Um, here we are, you're not on the far side of the you know, 21st century, in the middle of the 21st century. Here we are, and we think the Rose of Sharon, well, that sounds lovely. I mean, maybe that would be in one of our sort of altar pieces or something, or maybe you know, strewn out on our, on our table for some table piece. How many, we would love the, how beautiful the Rose of Sharon must be. But the shared experience of the world of Song of Solomon was probably the opposite. The Rose of Sharon was the flower that you found you know, around every corner. 
Um, it, it, was, it was a dime a dozen. So in other words, when we hear Rose of Sharon, we think, you know, how beautiful and lovely. And that world, the shared experience probably was Rose of Sharon, the most common flower that's out there. Nothing. And if you read the context of that statement in Song of Solomon, that's kind of what's going on. There's nothing really special about me. Um, but it was that shared experience that allowed us a kind of access to reality that we would not have otherwise. So that, that's why Jesus is using shared experiences as analogies, again, to get into the back door to communicate something about, uh, about the kingdom of God. Now, can I give you a few character traits of parables uh, here? I'll make this very brief because I do want to get um, into Luke 8. Number one, parables are brief. Number two, they have a simplicity and a symmetry about them. Uh, Number three, they are intended to give us a kind of human response. Number four, they're drawn from everyday life. You don't have to have a master's degree or a BA to make sense of Jesus' parables, at least on the level of the the analogies that he's using. They're engaging. Uh, There's often an element of reversal. That happens at the end. There's a catch that surprises us. And the tax collector went home that day justified. Huh? Didn't see that one coming. Um, and they all got paid the same amount at the end of the day, even though they all worked different different the lengths of time. What? Didn't see that, 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 that sort of element of reversal. And then the last point here is that there was a, there's a point at the end that Jesus draws for the sake of teaching and communicating. Now, one more introductory comment before we get into um, the parables. And this is actually something that um, I want to emphasize and will for this whole series. You would, kind of wouldn't expect otherwise. But that is the necessary Old Testament background uh, to the parables. Jesus' parables are working um, from the playbook of, of the Old Testament's prophetic literature that's already there. In other words, we tend to think of Jesus as sort of creating some new approach to teaching or something like that. No. Or, or maybe we'll locate Jesus in a conversation with Aesop, and, and, and that's, that's fine. Um, but we, we miss something significant, I think, if we don't locate Jesus' teachings in, in, in parabolic form with a kind of prophetic activity that we've already seen present um, in the Old Testament. Let me give you, um, and I, I won't bore, bore you too much with this, but there's a Hebrew word called mashal, which has a broad uh, semantic range. But the Hebrew word mashal um, can be used as a taunt song, it can be used as a parable, it can be used as a proverb. But you'll find this interesting when the Greek translators translated um, the Hebrew Bible, every time the Hebrew word mashal shows up, they translated that word parabole, parable. Um, all to say, the whole notion about parabolic discourse is present in the Old Testament itself, and especially so in the ways in which the Greek translators translated the Old Testament so that parable is actually there on the page um, in the Old Testament itself. But let me, let me give you some examples of how parables worked um, in the Old Testament. And you'll know all these, right? They're not identified as parables, but they are, in effect, parables. Uh, Nathan walks into the court of, the, of King David. Now, you do realize that these temple, pro- temple prophets and royal prophets were probably on the payroll, right? Um, and th- there's, there's been a lot of chatter in biblical scholarship these days about whether or not prophets who were on the payroll actually brought bad news. 
In other words, and if you look at the comparison to uh, Neo-Assyrian um, prophetic text or Babylonian prophetic text, you did not see royal prophets bringing bad news at all. Um, because they knew, you know, and, and you have, we have stories of that. You know, even think about um, King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And, the, and his wise men, his prophets, they're on the payroll and they can't provide what he wants. And he's about to kill all of them because they can't do that. I need, I need you to provide me a, a hopeful and a good word. So uh, here comes Nathan. The, the, the biblical prophets often bring bad words to the king. Here comes Nathan, not through the front door. This is King David. Right. This is this is this is the this is the royal patron of all of, of of the kingdom who has oversight both of the of the of the royal political side and the religious side of Israel. He has oversight of both of those. And uh, if I can use that indirect discourse notion, uh, Nathan knows he needs to come into the back door. He can't come right through the front door. So how does he do it? He does it by giving a parable. There's this family, their poor family. They they had a little lamb, and they they treated this. I'm giving you Eugene Peterson's the message right here, um, and they treated they treated this lamb like it was like it was their little chihuahua, it was their dog. I mean, they loved this lamb. They the kids played with the lamb, and and uh, and their rich neighbor next door who had sheep that he couldn't even count. There were so many of them. Um, had guests come into town, and he stole their lamb by by exerting his power and his wealth and his privilege, and he took their little baby lamb, their little family pet, and they killed that baby pet, and they fed it to their guests. Boy, I mean, all of a sudden now, Nathan is in David's living room, right? And he's sitting down, and David is incensed, furious. That man must die. And then what's the reversal at the end with the rather pointed response, right? Well, you're that guy. You did that. Remember Bathsheba and Uriah? By the way, Uriah is dead. Remember all that stuff? You did that. Um, that's a parable. Okay, that's an indirect discourse that allows the prophet to get in to speak a really direct word. Here's another one. One of my favorites. Isaiah chapter 5. Here comes Isaiah now the bard sitting around the campfire with um, the children of Israel. And he begins to sing a song in Isaiah 5. Right? I'm going to sing you a... I'm gonna sing, and he even tells you, I'm going to sing you a song. I'm going to give you, give you a little ditty here. And it's a song about a vineyard. And so there was this man and he had a vineyard and he planted the, the finest grapes. I watched an incredible uh, um, uh, Amazon Prime documentary on the whole region of Burgundy in France, right? So we're talking like, he, he planted Pinot Noir grapes, right? Um, none of this Merlot stuff, just joking. Uh, he, he planted Pinot, if that's your, I'm just joking. Um, but he planted the best grapes. And, and, and not only that, he built a, a, a tower. Um, and, and it was, it wasn't a movable tower, it was a tower out of stone. And then he built a, a, a wine vat out of stone as well, put all of his capital into this vineyard. And he's singing little songs, all in major key. It's kind of fun. You can hear the organ in the background, do, 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 right? Um, and he said, and then it comes, it comes time for the, 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 the vineyard to grow. And instead of getting choice grapes, he got, um, and it's kind of fun in Hebrew, it's, it's a stink fruit. Right, and, and all the translations say sour grapes, but if it really, I think a, a better green stinky fruit. That's what he got. Um, and stinky fruit makes really bad wine, apparently. Um, and so what happened to the to him? And now all of a sudden, this little ditty that the prophet is singing, or this little parable that he's singing, um, goes into a slightly modulated key in the second verse. And he says, well, this is when that, then what happened. He goes and he tears down the tower and he rips out the vines and he tears up the vineyard and it looks like a destroyed, a disheveled place. 
And all of a sudden, you're like, well, that's a, that song's not quite as fun anymore. And then the prophet stops the song and he tells them the point. The point is, you're the vineyard. God's the vintner. He meant to plant choice grapes among you, but instead you have yielded stinky fruit, covenantal stink fruit. And because of that, he's about to tear the whole vineyard out. And all of a sudden, the prophet's again sitting in the living room, uh, giving an indirect point that's now become very direct. Now, one last one, of course, you know, Jeremiah, and n none of our English translations do it this way, but I like to call it Jeremiah and his silk underwear, right? Now, remember this story, Jeremiah, the, 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 the silk loincloth or the brand new loincloth? Hey, Jeremiah, go get yourself a loincloth. So now he's giving a kind of parabolic demonstration that's visual, symbolic act. It's a storied act to the whole people. And what ends up happening? He goes and he buries the, the underwear and, and then God says, go get it after a couple of weeks. And he goes and he gets it and it's all disheveled. It's a, it's a mess. And, and, um, and uh, he says, well, I don't want to, really want to wear that. Um, and then what's the point? Well, the point is, I mean, again, it's not, it's not all that nice, but the point is, you know, it, Judah has become buried underwear, right? I mean, that's, that's the point. So you can see that this whole, um, that'd make an interesting sermon. We've got to think about how that is. <laughs> um, but you can see how the prophets do this. The prophets use these kinds of stories to, to again, make a really pointed and direct um, almost antagonistic point against a judgmental point against the people of God or for the people of God, but they do so by getting in an indirect way through um, through the back the back door. Okay. Now, with all that said, what's our time? Good. Let's now look at Luke eight. That's what I wanted to do, and we'll just get us out of the gate here this morning. Luke chapter eight. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, and this is a very important contextual statement, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. All right, so that's the theological context by which these parables need to be understood. Jesus is speaking about the character of God's kingdom that is now being inaugurated in this world because Jesus is in our midst. It's very important to have that Kingdom context. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and disease. Married, called the Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chutza, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. If you want an interesting book, this is an aside. Now, Richard Balcom has written a book called Gospel Women. Um, that's been out for probably a decade now. Um, but it's, it's, it is fascinating to see what signal roles women play in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, they, the, the women are paradigmatic disciples. I mean, there's something really powerful about that. They show up at the tomb. And, and anyway, that, that's an aside thing. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. Next week, we will explain the parable. Today, I just want us to look at the form of how Jesus delivers this parable and how he sets it all up. This is what he says. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds ate it all up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. 
Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up and, and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. And when he said this, now this is the, the sort of interpretive handle that you, we've got to get our minds around this morning on some level. When he said this, he called out to them, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. To put it in other terms, if you have ears, um, I hope you understand this. So I want you to notice something here. Verse, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Then in front of that whole large crowd, Jesus gives them this story and he says, if you have ears to hear, hear. And then verse 9, and this is, I think, part of the humor of the story, um, the disciples pull Jesus aside and they say, uh, we didn't quite get that. <laughs> In other words, like you just told us that we need to understand this, but we don't get it. And this is what Jesus said. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables. So that... And now he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. So that though seeing, they may not see, and though hearing, uh, they may not understand. Now, I've, I've grown, I'll just go and say this, I really wish Jesus wouldn't have said that. But he did. So we're going to have to get our, our, our heads around that in some way. Um, I've, I've come to really value in, um, in, in public discourse, and, and I'm sure you do as well, people who can be um, brief and people that can be clear, right? Um, I mean, let's, let's just become clean. I'll say this about my own public teaching as well. I mean, how many 40-minute sermons have you heard that would have been so much better in 20? I mean, come on, let's come clean, right? Um, and you Episcopalians, maybe you've never heard a 40-minute sermon. Let me tell you about it. Um, <laughs> They exist, all right? They exist. Um, you know, so I, I, and I get this from Calvin. I mean, this is John Calvin's influence on me. John Calvin um, was very big on uh, um, um, brevity and clarity, right? Jesus gets like A plus here in the rhetorical school for, for uh, brevity. I mean, it's like that, that, that story didn't even take, I mean, you, could, you say it in one breath. So we went to sow, and this happened, and some, some got choked out, and some, you know, the birds ate it up, and then others grew, and if you have ears here, let, let them hear it. And then the piano's playing for the, the invitation. Well, it's over. Right. Now it's like, that, that's, that's my kind of sermon, Jesus. Appreciate that. Right? Um, so he gets points for clarity, I mean for brevity. What about for clarity? Um, you know, F, right? It's, it's not clear. Exactly what Jesus is intending to teach. By the, now, the story is shared. Everyone gets the imagery. You don't. You don't have to get a you know an MA in horticulture from Auburn, uh, you know, to get the imagery about the, the farm imagery that's going on here. Everybody gets that. Um, but what does it mean? And then this is Jesus's first parable, so he's setting out for us a kind of understanding of why he's even doing parabolic discourse. And and even the disciples say to him, "We didn't understand what you were talking about. I mean, we got the story, but what what what's this all about?" And then Jesus says, um, "To you have been given the keys to understand the kingdom of God, but for others I'm going to speak in parabolic form." so that hearing they may not hear and seeing that they may not understand. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. 
Now, let's go back to Isaiah just for a second. You know Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the Lord lifted up. He's high. Um, he gets his mouth purged by the, by the two seraphim, the flying snakes. Um, he then sa- hears God talking to himself in his own divine counsel. And uh, God said, who's going to go for us? Um, I, uh, Isaiah says, I will go for you. And then, uh, again, this is prophetic bait and switch by God on, on poor Isaiah. So he signs the dotted line. Isaiah says, I'll go for you. And then God says to him, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to speak my word to the people so that their ears may be shut up and that their eyes may become blinded. Um, and what was Isaiah's response to that? Isaiah's response to that was, well, for how long do I need to do this? And the answer was, until the decimation has left only a tenth of the city remaining. That's how long. Um, Jesus is stepping in to this Isaianic persona. I mean, you, you know about the triad of Jesus being um, prophet, priest, and king. He's, he's entering into his existence publicly as prophet. And, and unlike any other prophet, Jesus both delivers the word of God and is identical with the word of God. No other prophet was that. So, so Jesus is drawing from this Isaianic, and by the way, he's quoting Isaiah here. So he's drawing from this to let them know that the Word of God has the ability to both harden and enliven. It, 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 and I, I think about this because this is a this is a especially for our, for our kids, right? For those that were you know our grandkids, um, the Word of God's never neutral. It's not a neutral thing. It, it's it's a, it's an alive and an active reality that. Um, can lead toward hardening and it can lead toward enlivening. And by the way, all of that is in the operative work of the Holy Spirit who blows where He wishes. We, we're, we are not in control. That is one thing that I think the reformers got so well. That is, I think we, we want to hold on to this as something central to our teaching. For all of their hard work, they went to dif- seminary and div- they did the divinity school. They learned their Greek and their Hebrew and they read all the class. I mean, they, they were, um, just, they, 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 they had enormous energy to engage biblical studies on the fine-tuned brass tax level. But the reformers, oops. The reformers, to a T, knew for all of their hard work, they could never make the Bible happen. That that was out of their purview, out of their control. It's God's work to do with His Word what He wills and chooses uh, to do. So Jesus is saying something here about the nature of the kingdom of God and the Word of God. The Word of God comes to those who have ears to hear. But for others, the Word of God can actually close ears and blind eyes. In fact, when you go back to Isaiah, when Isaiah is moving from all this judgment language in the first part of Isaiah and then moves to this bridge chapter in Isaiah 35, do you know how Isaiah 35 sets up for you Isaiah 40? You know all know know that from Handel. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Your sins are forgiven. You know how Isaiah sets up chapter 40 with chapter 35? And here's the imagery that's used. God is going to open their eyes and He's going to open their ears. How about Isaiah 61? It's the one text that we know Jesus preached a sermon on in the synagogue, right? Um, in the year of, of, of favor, the Lord will be, uh, He will preach um, deliverance to the captives. The Spirit of God will fall on you um, and, and release to those who are in prison. 
And then Jesus closes the scroll and he says, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. Last time Jesus preached in the synagogue, by the way, when he did that, right? Um, I am uh, I am the referent of Isaiah 61. Now, I won't go into details here, but I, 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 if I had to translate Isaiah 61, I probably wouldn't translate it, released to prisoners. I'm not going to go into details. I would probably translate it as, the opening of the eyes of the blind. Um, that's, for Isaiah, that's the moment of redemption. When God's people's eyes are opened, and they're no longer blind, and they can see the reality of the kingdom of God in their midst. And Jesus is using parables here to obfuscate, to show that, hey, this is a moment of judgment, right? We talked about this, you know, we've talked about this around here a lot over the past two weeks. Jesus is the judge, and even Jesus bringing parables is an indication that He is bringing judgment. I mean, the fact that He says here, so that... Um, Matthew's Gospel, I think in an even way that's a little bit more grinding, says because um, they cannot hear and they cannot see. Um, so Jesus is bringing a moment of judgment, but He's also bringing the moment that Isaiah promised, and that is for those who are His, He's opening eyes and He's opening ears so that they can now see. So the parables are in this kingdom dynamic that recognizes that God's kingdom is in our midst and the promised word of Isaiah and the prophets is now among us. So I wanted to set that up for you. We'll, we'll talk more about this um, next week as we get into the actual content of the parable because the content of the parable is going to show us how people's ears get opened and their eyes become unblinded. That's what the, that, When Jesus explains the parable, um, this, is, this is what happens. Um, by the way, I had a, I'll conclude with this. I had a conversation with a colleague this week, Ken Matthews, told him I was going to do the parable of the sower on Sunday. He said, Mark, did you hear the story about the young preacher who was preaching, um, the parable of the sower? And he went through the parable and, um, and then he gave his long explanation about it and gave his own understanding of it. And he said he had never flipped the page to realize that Jesus actually told them what the parable is all about. Right? So it's like, well, let me tell you what I think Jesus is doing here. Um, next week, we'll come back together uh, to see what Jesus is saying about the nature of the Word of God in the kingdom of God and how eyes are opened and ears are made um, to hear. So, Lord, thank you for parables and the challenge that they are. Um, the challenge, Lord, to... Um, to drive us to you, to ask you, O oh Lord, give us ears that we might hear. Let us, Lord, be those who have the ears to hear. And even if on the surface level, Lord, to understand that who you are, Jesus, and the announcement of your kingdom, and what your kingdom looks like in our midst, as we yearn for it, Lord, to descend on us in its totality. Um, thank you for these, king these parables, Lord, that will give us access and keys to understand the beauty and the profundity and the glory of your kingdom now among us and to be consummated at your second coming. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.